0: Hey everyone, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a brand new interview with one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash thedirectorscut. This episode takes us behind the scenes of the newest film by director Mel Gibson, Hacksaw Ridge. The film tells the remarkable true story of Desmond T. Doss, a World War II army medic who became the first conscientious objector to receive the Congressional Medal of Honor. The story follows Doss, played by Andrew Garfield, from boot camp where he is ostracized and nearly jailed for refusing to bear arms, to the Battle of Okinawa, where he proves his heroism by saving 75 soldiers from the front lines without ever firing a single shot. Mr. Gibson's directorial credits include the feature films The Man Without a Face, The Passion of the Christ, Apocalypto, and Braveheart, for which he won the Academy Awards for Best Director and Best Picture, and was nominated for the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Feature Film. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theatre in Los Angeles, Mr. Gibson discussed the challenges of making Hacksaw Ridge with director John Polson. Mr. Polson is a fellow actor and director from Australia, where Gibson grew up. He also directed the feature films Hide and Seek and Swim Fin. Their conversation covers why Gibson finally agreed to direct the film after being offered the script three times over a ten-year period how he staged the battle scenes on an Australian dairy farm the size of a football field, and his intention for parts of the film to visually investigate the space between the man and the bullet.
1: Thank you guys. Wow, ladies and gentlemen, welcome, Mel Gibson, welcome. How about another round of applause for this guy? I have, to, I have to confess, I saw the film for the first time right now, so I'm still recovering. I thought it was absolutely incredible and, and uh, hats off to you, Mel. To just to kick off, um, let's rewind, I mean, ten years ago, Apocalypto, yeah. and uh, how did you come across Hacksaw Ridge?
2: Well, first I was almost late because I was, I was doing something very important. I was videotaping Vince Vaughn watching a Cubs game <laughs> and, and uh, it, I think they're up five or six to one. On on Cleveland, so yes. it looks like they're going to bring it home. But, you know, Vince's hopes could still be dashed to the carpet. We don't know. How did the script come across? Well, it was given me by the producers who had actually been riding this Bronco for about 15 years, David Permit and Bill Mechanic. Right. A producer who's not afraid to get his hands dirty, and he uh, deemed to make it in Australia. Um,
1: so that was before you were attached? That was the, the plan to produce it in Australia? I think so. Yeah. And I read somewhere that you were offered the film a couple times.
2: Yeah, in the last 10 years. I saw the script three times. And it's so just, what changed? I don't know. Sometimes it just enters you. It resonates all of a sudden in a different kind of way. But, And I think perhaps Robert Shank and the writer had maybe done another couple of drafts. And it just kind of hit me the right way. And I thought, you know, it's a really worthwhile story to tell.
1: And it was this, I'm just curious. It was the same draft that you were sent a couple times or it had changed over the years? You know, I could not tell you. Okay. Just the same project.
2: No, I read a lot of... I so
1: eventually you took a read of it and it connects with you. Yeah. And I'm curious, obviously, you know, everybody here knows your body of work, incredible body of work. You come at it you, as an actor. Do you feel like, um, you know, do you need to um, identify with the lead character? Is that what... Is that what it, was about this script or it was more the story? What was it about the story
2: that that grabbed you? Yes, the story. And I think that the story is central to the lead character. It's all about him. It's all about who he is, intrinsically who he is. And uh, who Desmond Doss was, was a guy of incredible, you know, moral courage and and faith and uh, um, unshakable, you know, uh, conviction, who did something incredible. I mean, he's an ordinary man doing extraordinary things in incredibly difficult circumstances. And this you know that's the makings of, of a really true hero story is the pinnacle of heroism what he did so was he a character
1: you were aware of before you read the script
2: no, i never heard of him before and i read just,
1: the script yeah but and so i know there was a documentary written how much of the film i mean it felt so detailed and blow by blow frankly to me and i'm sure people here agree it's sort of pitch perfect i mean is this stuff that you and the writers embellished or was a lot of this really documented?
2: More of it's true than not. And and uh, of course, to make anything cinematically compelling, you may stretch it here and there, but it's not overtly stretched, you know.
1: So a lot of the episodes are just, you know, straight out of what, what yeah. actually happened.
2: or they're based in truth for some reason. I mean, they're you know, Desmond did, I mean, people said that didn't happen with the grenade. It did, he stepped on a grenade to save his buddies and took the shrapnel. Uh, he was that kind of guy, just selfless. And, um, and and I had to pull back on how uh, heroic he really was because after he gets hit and he's being dragged off on a stretcher, he sees another guy who's shot, and he figures, well, that guy's worse than me, so he jumps off, he ministers to that guy's wounds, patches him up, sticks him on his own stretcher, and they run off with that guy because it's thick, and he crawls back like 300 yards and gets shot up by some snipers and stuff. It was crazy, you know? So, yeah, I mean, you, it's, hard. it's Monty Python, right? It's the Black Knight. It's like... Oh, enough or you've done enough you know but but if you put that in the film people would have gone oh. so you had to draw the line at at fact is stranger than fiction
1: so i'm curious about the process of taking it from the script you read to the script you shoot obviously i mean i know andrew knight came on and did a pass of the script
2: oh yeah it was great andrew was great robert shankin's script was already pretty good i had tears salty tears on page 54 and then you know, just to actually kind of massage it a little bit more to work in the themes of PTSD and Hugo's character. Right. You know, we got Andrew Knight into it and we rewrote scenes throughout and we changed the tone of some things.
1: But structurally, it was always pretty much what we saw.
2: It was always two acts, um, and right. which is unusual. I mean, it's actually, it's weird. It's almost like six acts. It's two acts, but each act has three m- sub-acts. Right. It's, it's an interesting thing.
1: So it was about, with, with Andrew Knight, and it was about working with you and sort of bringing out what was already
2: there and really making it. Yeah, we massaged it, we changed it. Um, you know, somebody had to create what the battles actually look like. That wasn't, you know, written down like this happens then this happens. The battle happens, you know, and it had something. But, you know, we, we got specific with that. You have to plan and execute a sequence of events that makes sense on some level, strategically, uh, that's understandable, that's clear, it's always important to be clear in these situations, you know, screen direction's important and all that kind of stuff and then of course within that clarity then you can wreak havoc and make chaos.
1: Yeah, because I'm curious about that, what I found with the battle sequences, they were incredibly chaotic but also very detailed, it wasn't like just craziness, it was very, it felt very choreographed in a good way and each beat had its right place, and is that in the script for you? Is that in the edit room?
2: Well, that's not in the script. You you fashion that yourself. That's what a director does. You know, he gets in and he fashions the script. I do storyboards. I, I visualize what's going on and then um, play it out in some way. But it's kind of like a like a symphony. I mean, it has movements. Um, um, you know, the, the first battle scene is different from the second battle scene is different from the third battle scene. One has no music, some has music, and uh, there are other changes too, but, you know, the last one, for example, is practically lyrical. So it's, um, you know, you have to <coughs> not do the same thing or you go mad, but, um, so, you know, it takes a little planning, and, and um, of course, you don't do these things alone. You need the cooperation of everyone, you know, the 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 whole crew and every department and the actors and the stunt guys and the special effects guys and everything
1: else so So it's so it's storyboarded the battle scenes are pretty and you stick pretty closely to the storyboard Uh, no you 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 have a plan and you change it
2: you have a you have a bible that you can stick to and i get those things but if i can get more stuff i go for more stuff anything i can get that sort of like rings my bell and try this try that And sometimes you have ideas on the spur of the moment, and it's um, you know it throws everything into havoc because oh we don't have time. This is an independent film. It's not like a big studio film. This is like an indie film. It looks like a huge studio film. We got we got a lot of bang for our buck. I mean, this was 59 days schedule, with that's incredible. uh, Yeah, and and I was tired. And 59 days schedule and like 40 million bucks, which is pretty good for this. I think it looks like a hundred. And um, um, and but it's but it's it's the people you have around you and the crews in Australia and the actors and the stunt guys and the special, all those departments were slick.
1: I totally agree. I mean, it was it Good was. Um, yeah. What about the casting? So how did that happen? When did Andrew come on?
2: No, up? Andrew wanted to do it. He read it. He was moved like I was. And he's a, a when I saw uh, that he wanted to do it, I was all on board. I thought that guy's amazing. I've seen his work before and not the spider-man stuff although he thought he was good in that but um you know this was a chance for him to play a superhero and not wear any spandex he is incredible
1: in this film because he's just so real and so vulnerable he's real and believable in what is you know as even the characters say in the film kind of an unbelievable situation this guy shows up to war not wanting to yeah. shoot a gun and he totally right. sold
2: it well yeah he inhabited the character perfectly or the character inhabited him i don't know which but he gets to a kind of a high level of uh of interchange there i don't know it's almost like seance like but he went to desmond's farm and he you know held on to his tools and and uh you know asked desmond to help him and all this kind of stuff and he, he can, you know when he arrived he was and he's from england this kid you know he's an english boy Oh, I didn't realize. So the that. accent's amazing. And even we took it to Lynchburg, and they were like, wow. you know, They, they didn't even have a gripe. Um, he did a really excellent... So did all the crew. Vince was amazing.
1: Yeah, Vince. I was curious about Vince because he shows up, and it's not exactly the sort of... I mean, obviously, everybody loves Vince Vaughn, but, you know, it's not exactly the sort of film you think of Vince Vaughn in, and yet he is so well used, he's very believable in the genre or, or, you know, the style of film, but he also plays some pretty subtle but great comedy in some of that stuff. Well, he's
2: loaded. I mean, he comes loaded with his own qualities. I mean, humor and, and wit are intrinsic to who Vince is, and intelligence, too, and I think you see the intelligence. He doesn't even say anything. Sometimes it's just the look, but he was able to make a very subtle transition, as was Luke, you know, from them being kind of bullies and... They, they kind of make this change, and sometimes it's wordless. It's just, but you get it.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things I loved about it was all of the peripheral characters, for want of a better word, mm-hmm. Teresa Palmer, Hugo, mm-hmm. uh, Rachel Griffiths, mm-hmm. um, Sam Worthington, obviously. Julie, yeah. it's, it, it was just kind of perfect. And yeah, I got to right. believe, and you're probably going to be humble about it, but your background as an actor, you're working closely. You're not just sitting back rolling the camera. I'm assuming you're in there... Not exactly doing it for them, but no. working pretty closely on exactly what you feel like the scene needs?
2: Well, I, I think, you know, I have a shape that I like, but basically, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And let someone work, give them some air, and back off. There's very little adjustment I have to do, particularly with actors and uh, actresses of this caliber. So I was fortunate. If you pick the right people, man, you don't have to... I'm just like a traffic cop uh, that way there. over there, do
1: that. So, just going back to the size of the production, because obviously, I think everybody knows. In the last few years, film budgets have been slashed. You said this is an independent film. You said it costs forty million dollars, which, I mean, again, it's hard well, that's to That's actually that.
2: twenty-seven U.S., but then once you take the right. the rebate and the dollar exchange, it works out to about forty.
1: So, how does that work in terms of? Is that just take very careful planning? And very. I'm assuming. I mean, you tell me. Is there a lot? in the in the editing process are you rewriting the movie as you like are you cutting scenes Are the things that of course you've got to be kind of brutal and take stuff out that you thought worked great in the script yeah. and maybe even works great on screen well, but any, it's not any, helping any the story
2: you do the edit in the beginning if you can you edit the script so you don't have to film it and drop it on the floor later so you you extract as much as you can that you don't think you'll need of course You'll never be perfect on that count. So afterwards, you go in and you we clip some stuff, of course, that was slowing it down. I wish it could have even been faster in the first act, but I kind of like the structure. as two acts, and I, I sort of always imagined that it was kind of like a Norman Rockwell painting being introduced to an Hieronymus Bosch painting, and then <laughs> taking the Rockwell characters out of the Rockwell painting and dropping them into hell in the Hieronymus Bosch. You know, and um, and that sort of for me. Uh, Is the power of the film in a way because it's like kind of like the death of innocence in an era that was less complicated and sweeter, and uh, uh, and to show what war does to people, I think, and and for an audience to empathize what veterans must have to suffer when they when they go there and come back, and you know they've seen some horrible things that marks them indelibly for the rest of their lives. They're they're never the same. Um, We showed it to a lot of. (coughs) <coughs> disabled veterans, and they were—they um, uh, thought it was very cathartic, and they were moved by it. We had counselors and stuff in case we triggered any PTSD episodes, but uh, we found that, yeah, they were affected by it, cathartic, but they found it therapeutic as well because they felt like if other people saw it, they might understand some of what they their plight.
1: Yeah, I got to say, I mean, I think we've all seen a lot of war movies. Um, for me personally, the battle sequences. Is about as real as I've ever felt. It's close as I've ever felt I could be to knowing what that must feel like. So that's a real tribute. Um, Very, very, very good.
2: Watched a lot of um, footage and um, and read a lot of accounts. There's a very good history book by a man named Pfeiffer that I really liked. I can't remember the name of the book. It's got a red cover. I, I read the thing like crazy, and it kind of got to me in a very personal way because it was ta- it was it had a very personal you know from the men's mouths kind of thing, and uh, they told you how they felt and they told you what was going on. It was the greatest loss of life in the Pacific theater, um, and you know it preempted you know the the bomb being dropped because they didn't want to see that many people lost again. But um, <coughs> the Japanese called it a steel rain, and it was the first time napalm was used in in a lot of those. <coughs> to get them out of the caves and stuff so it was a brutal and a bitter conflict and many people died in the space of less than three months i mean it was like 10 weeks i think and it was just horrific but uh,
1: and as a filmmaker with it's obviously incredibly violent for a, certainly the second half of it mm. is there a moment where you wonder or are you playing around in the editing room is this too violent is it not violent enough sure Do i need to be this violent to really tell the story i mean what's the mm. process there
2: yeah there's a process and, you know, you temper some things. I tempered this. And, uh, this is the tempered version. <laughs> yes, it is. Because yeah. you don't want people running out screaming, but at the same token, you want to give them an idea of what it feels like to be in a foxhole. So, yeah, you know, we could have gone further, but you know, there's a place where you have to stop. Yeah, I want to keep you in your seats, you know.
1: So we're going to open up to some audience questions in a second. I guess I have one last question from me. Obviously... The film is on a great track. I know it went to Venice. It got a ten-minute standing ovation. It's getting incredible buzz, if that's the right word. And, you know, people are loving it. Certainly I felt like this audience loved it. And everything I heard before tonight, I uh, was almost I was almost nervous that I was getting too much hype, and, and, and it certainly exceeded my expectations still. When do you feel like, as a filmmaker, I mean, is that something you felt like you kind of could see coming for a long time. When do you, I mean, well, I guess the editing is probably part of this question too. How long's the first cut? And I'm assuming that's, I want to say a mess, but it's huge and it's time to roll up your sleeves and, and try and find the movie or not?
2: Um, it, uh, you know, the, the the first rough assembly, I don't know, two hours and 40 minutes or something like that. But I think we got it down to about 210 without credits, you know. But, um, so you know, you dropped a half an hour someplace.
1: So do you feel right. like as from the moment, you you know, working on the script right through that you're onto a winner or you don't think about it like that? You just want to make the story and well, know, let other know. people decide?
2: It's interesting, your sensibilities and then the sensibilities of all the other artists you work with come into play here and there's a consensus and you commit certain things to celluloid given that you're limited by time and money but that's what you end up with. But to a degree, apart from all that, a film kind of makes itself, like the camera has a brain. and So, you know, when you finally slap it together, you kind of <clears throat> look at it really the first time to see how it works. And it was, you know, it wasn't working perfectly, but I knew it was going to work um, when I first looked at it. So then we just, you know, roll the sleeves up and trim the fat and, and enhance other things and swap out takes. And juggle things around or do what you have to do. And, of and course you have your collaborators,
1: your producers, I'm assuming, people watching it, obviously the editors, sure. personally involved. Is yeah, there it, was, you there a was,
2: yeah, we had one producer who really hung in called Bill Mechanic. <clears throat> There's a lot of producers up here, but Bill got his hands dirty.
1: Right. So he funny? was in the screenings and giving
2: feedback. And He was there the whole time.
1: And what's your take as a filmmaker on, do you show it to... Audience, friends and family, any of that kind of that stuff? That kind of right? stuff.
2: I mean, it's good to get an outside view and the other pair of eyes on it because you lose your objectivity after a while. You start to see the frames, you know. I mean, I presume there's directors here. You know what it's like. It's like you watch something so many times you think you're going to die and you don't. You begin not to trust your own eyes and ears anymore. So your own perceptions are, you know, up for grabs. But.
1: Well, well done. Um, how about some, any questions from the audience?
2: Not a one. Hey, there he goes. <laughs> uh, the
1: here. Let me I just don't... repeat the question for everybody. So the documentary footage at the end, was that added just, you know, was it just an, an idea or what was the what was behind that?
2: Well, I think even before we finished filming, <coughs> we had toyed with the idea, because I'd watched that documentary online, and Terry Benedict did it. Yeah, the real Desmond, the, all the real guys, I think it's, like it's an hour and a half, this documentary, so there's a a bunch of stuff in there that came in really handy. I watched it a couple of times. It's also a moving document because you're talking to the real guy and we just use tiny little bits of it at the end to sort of like pay tribute to Desmond and tell you like it's true you know and um, you know that's that's what happened. I mean when it seems really corny sometimes, it's not corny, it's like what happened. but it was another time in another era. Uh,
1: this question here. So the question is, yeah, what did did Mel tell everybody else in those sequences and the artists, um, what his vision was for how those scenes should go? Um,
2: Well, I told him I wanted to investigate the space between the man and the bullet and have things fairly confronted Um, and to be on ground level. They said, you want helicopters? I went, no helicopters, you know, let's just stay in the dirt. Um, The battlefield was only 100 meters by 75 meters, so it wasn't much bigger than a football field. And it was in the middle of a dairy farm in New South Wales. (laughs) And uh, so, you know, staying close to the ground was better. You didn't see the cattle in the farmhouses. (laughs) And the gum trees, um, although you do see some gum trees, but I bet you didn't know what they were. You ignore the gum tree when you see some guy getting shot, I guess.
1: How much of those sequences were VFX, and how much was, like, real stunts?
2: There was a lot of real, um, actual, you know, on the set effects. A lot of they have these things called box bombs that are about the size of a shoe box. And they got quite a bang. I mean, but you can get like three feet away from these things. You can run through the middle of it and just, you know. Burn, get yeah, burn your nose hairs. I mean it's like going to the barber, you know, it's 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 <laughs> uh, so the stunt guys were fooling around with that. You know, they got all tooled up and they said, now nah, this is surprisingly it looks amazing.
1: So. I'm assuming that stuff has to be incredibly well-planned for safety reasons. Or Absolutely. A, oh, no. Sa- so it's,
2: it's like everybody knows exactly what's going to go on. Oh, yeah. No, I, I always, I'm on, you know, I'd say, remember the S-word and safety. You know, if anybody, you know, does anything unsafe, I'll kill them, you know. And it's, um, and that's, that's been the, the story all along. The Braveheart stuff we used to do, man, I think we had a hangnail and a twisted ankle. It was really amazing that nobody got hurt, you see. Wow. Because they're drilled in safety and, you know, you tell them, a, you have to educate people, all the extras and stuff. You don't really have to hit a guy. You don't even have to get close. The camera sees this. Close one eye. Everybody, close one eye. And you close one eye and you just sort of go like this. Look, it looks like I'm putting it into my ear, doesn't it? You can miss by a mile, you know. So, um, you know, education is required. So everyone cools out and so it's really safe.
1: But I'm assuming some VFX, you see a guy do a 360 in the air. Oh, I sure. Mean, that's like yeah. a little know, bit of
2: embellishment, but mostly yeah, yeah. real. He, no, that's oh, real. That's real. That's wow. Okay. the only the only CGI there is we erase the cable that's yanking him. Oh wow. That's, okay. It's over a big pulley on a crane somewhere. Huge. So you're going yoink! and the guy's like, he knows it's coming. And he's got three twists around him and he's like, he just goes flying off. Amazing. But uh it's basic really. It's just it's it's old fashioned. It's like the Roman theater. You know. Put right. him on a crane, the Deus Ex machina. Right.
1: Any questions right here?
2: Well, on both questions, it was an independent film, and there wasn't much time, so there was like a week of boot camp uh, where they got drills and were talked to, and you know we didn't put them through hell or dump ice water on them or you know make them you know light matches on their faces, nothing like that. It was like just do what you can in a short amount of time, and the amount of takes was dictated by insurance, and uh, you know um, you had to be very judicious about. That, because time was of the essence for 59 days, we had to get a lot of bang for our buck, you know. So we were moving fast. Sometimes I wasn't very happy. I was like, oh. But.
1: What about other rehearsal, like the acting rehearsal, the emotional stuff, not so much the boot camp? I mean, are you a big director on getting people together for a couple of weeks, or they just show up and rehearse on set, or what's the deal?
2: We don't leave until the actors get it right, and... <laughs> And fortunately for me, these were very high caliber actors, so we didn't have to fool around if it wasn't quite right. One day we just stopped. I said, there's something wrong with the scene. And I went to Vince's trailer and I sat down with he and Andrew and we rewrote the whole scene. Which to, scene is that? It's the one after he gets beat up and the sergeant goes in and talks to him and all that. So we rewrote it in the trailer. And, wow. we, and then we went. took us an hour and a half to figure out all the motivations and the words and everything, and we went back and shot it. So sometimes you got to be working pretty fast. We did that a few times, but, you know, it's... Um, but it pays <coughs> off. It does and, pay off.
1: And I'm talking about rehearsal in prep. Are you, do you get the actors together before you've even started shooting? Oh, yeah. Talk about the characters?
2: Sure. You see them individually together sometimes and just sound them out, see what they say, and then tell you what, you know, what do you think and ask them questions and, you know, it gets sorted out pretty quick. They get a right. good idea of, of who they are and where they're going and what they're doing.
1: Uh, I saw another question right here in the front. So the question is, did Mel watch other war movies is his research for this one?
2: No. Um, I mean, I have favorites that I kind of remember. I got a pretty good visual memory. I'll remember you till I know. (laughs) So you remember stuff. So I just remember cool things about, uh, you know, the sands of Iwo Jima or, you know, or um, uh, what was was the other um, objective Burma? You remember that film? It had Errol Flynn in it. It was kind of cool because it was 50s and it had a more cynical view of war and what what America and Japanese had just been through. And it was kind of more cruel in a a way. you know, about atrocity and stuff like that. So, But without showing anything, because it was the 50s. But um, that, and of course, you know, I remember the beginning of Private Ryan and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, Uh, subconsciously, I'm sure that everything I've ever seen was kind of stored in some recessive file down in the bowels of my brain box. But
1: you also want to create your own kind of view of it and come up with your own way of telling it, I'm sure. Absolutely,
2: yeah. It's like, you know, you get ideas and you try and execute them and uh, see if they work and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't.
1: Well, guys, we're getting the wrap up here. Do we have time for one more question? Right here, this gentleman's been waiting.
2: Yes, (laughs) yes. In fact, uh, and we didn't put that in the story but they couldn't get up on ropes and stuff like that so they requested uh, cargo nets from the Navy and one of the things that happened, and this is another true story that you just, like, if you did this, it just the army uh, that Desmond was with actually had to go and install the nets and, you know, fix them on top of the cliff. And they said, who wants to volunteer to go and put the nets up? And nobody raised their hand. And Desmond said, I'll do it. And there is a wow. photograph of him standing up on top of this ridge with everybody else down below. And he's just standing up there like this. It's amazing. It's, he, was, he was an amazingly courageous person. Because he didn't just he didn't just do this in Okinawa. He did this in Guam and in the Philippines as well. He'd already earned the respect of his brothers by crawling into enemy fire. Didn't matter if there was somebody in trouble. He didn't care. He valued their life more than his, and he'd go and get them. So it's not really a war movie. It's kind of a love story.
1: On that note, uh, <laughs> Mel, incredible film. Thank, thank you so thank you. so much. Thank you <laughs> for being here. Thank you you. you all very much, and thanks to the DGA for having the screen.
0: Thanks for listening to this DGA Q&A. Check out past episodes of the podcast by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts or on our website at dga.org slash podcast. We'll have a lot more episodes coming your way over the next several weeks, so stay tuned. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to The Director's Cut on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, or our SoundCloud page so you won't miss an episode. If you are enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.